The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm here sitting in the new brilliant studios at uh, newsgazettewdws.com. I'm enjoying it so far, trying to get used to all this fancy equipment. Thankfully, I have Ed next to me, the great Ed Bond. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz, as usual. Dr. Fred. Hi, good to be in the new. See you here. Uh, accommodations. Uh, yes, it's nice. Uh, certified financial planner, professional David Rudy. I'm kind of juggling here, guys, but welcome. Thanks for having me. And I have Ryan Repko, who's also an associate with Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so uh, we're going to get going today. We've got a lot to cover, but I think everybody's probably noticed the stock market just kind of keeps going up. It's kind of like that ever-ready ever bunny. It just, just won't stop. And uh, so, you know, as David was saying in the car, Ryan, and uh, Fred, you weren't there, but uh, it just seems like yesterday we broke above 20,000 on the Dow yeah. and everybody got all excitable. Yeah. And then it was 21, and, and, and now we're almost to 23.5. Right. And it's really amazing. Um that really hasn't let the people that haven't participated much back in. Everybody kind of waits for the ship to come back to the dock. Right. And it doesn't even get close to the dock. Right. And I think it's been one of the longest periods without even as much as a 5% decline. It's just, right. uh, is my question to you, Fred, and we were, I was just thinking about this because this has been my theme since Dow 13, uh, since 2013 that we're in this, what I call a secular long-term bull market, and they're very powerful, and they're almost unbelievable as they unfold. But we've had this long period of 2% or so um, growth, GDP growth, Mm -hmm. real GDP growth, which is net of inflation. And is this maybe, because it's a discounting mechanism, right? The stock market's always looking down the road. Is it, is, could, could we find out six months from now, maybe the economy is growing at a, a better rate, and maybe the market itself kind of the overlapping minds sniff that out ahead of time it's certainly possible i i, I personally uh doubt it's going to be a long-term trend uh, breaking through the two percent uh level is a real challenge now so we did actually grow faster last quarter but i i, I wouldn't necessarily predict we're in this new uh three percent range again but it certainly uh is a possibility but uh as you said it's a very uh um perplexing kind of situation is even more so because I just read over the weekend that uh, Americans actually are uh, doing what we say, rebalancing. They're taking some money out of the stock market, so it has to be coming from someplace, and the only other place is uh, from uh, other countries, so it's, it's really strong. Uh, you get, told me, uh, uh, use a term uh, several years ago that I, I still don't understand. It's called a melt-up, a meltdown down right. where something happens. You don't know why it's happening in one direction i guess the melt up is a, a it just feeds on itself uh yeah. you know it, it goes up because it's going up and people feel like they're missing it i think and it gets a momentum right uh, you know we get momentum on the downside it's always faster and deeper on the downside right. um you know we've seen days we just got past the 30 year anniversary of the october 87 crash on the 19th where between sunup and sundown the market broad u.s market fell 22 percent. that's the equivalent i just wrote in our, my most recent newsletter um, I'm kind of on this theme of, yes, this I'm not taken by surprise. Yeah. I've been through a secular bull market, but what gets confusing, I think, to clients and other folks um, is at the same time, I got to always have these warnings of even in a secular bull market, you get days like we've right. seen with 22 percent, 5,000, it'd be the equivalent of 5,000 points today. Right. And I think people, you know, to the extent they should be rebalancing, uh, you always want to do that when you're calm. But before they get too giddy, um, you know, you have to consider that we've had really ugly periods, even in big, strong secular bull markets. Right. And I think it confuses people a little bit. Yeah, it really is a, a strange world because uh, in the past, uh, a downturn, it would take maybe uh, months or years to recover. Uh, more recently, it's been uh, a few weeks, and now it's a few days. It seems like the stock market goes down. Uh, within two or three days, it uh, surpasses the high and just keeps going up and up and up. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just again. It's a, I think it's momentum, and like I said, I the first 
secular bull market in the industry a long, long time ago, early 80s. We saw the Dow go from 1,000 to 13 or 14,000 in 18 years. Yeah. And we start thinking about that magnitude of growth. And then that really uh, underwhelms you a little bit because if you, add, if you reinvested dividends through that time period, it was a much bigger multiplier. Right. And also, it's a, it's a kind of word of uh, warning that uh, momentum investing works as long as the momentum continues. And this is the uh, period, like in the 90s and uh, to a certain extent in the t- uh, early 2000s, when uh, day traders thought they were being sure. the world. And uh, it looks pretty good when it's going yeah. up like this. It, and that, that's, what it, that's what a secular bull market yeah. looks like because it, it's, it's very forgiving. And so it can trick people pretty quickly into thinking that they actually have skill as opposed yeah. to luck. Uh, you could call in with your questions at 217-356-9397. Is that number still good? Okay. Uh, you, well, I'll get to the other number. Or you could text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 3515357. The actual number here is 217-351-5667 if you want to call in to the show. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. Got to make the regulators happy. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. So I wanted to get that out of the way. I was so excited about this new studio. Right. You know, we had to jump right in. <laughs> I left a few yeah. things out. I was going to make one comment, kind of interesting. Uh, I found uh, maybe the, the safest investment of all. Uh, I received a long-delayed uh, payment from the state of Illinois for dental uh, coverage and it was seven hundred dollars and accompany it was a check for a hundred and thirty dollars of interest so you <laughs> oh, can't, interesting you can't uh, can't get that kind of deal many many places <laughs> well fred i noticed that one of the uh people on the federal reserve uh, the, uh his name is john williams i see there's an article that he believes the unemployment rate may dip below four percent by autumn 2018 for the first time in half a century and then he goes on to say that comparing unemployment relative to the normal rate and an inflation relative to 2%, the U.S. economy is as close to ideal bullseye as we've ever been. And then he goes on to say that officials are struggling to rec- reconcile the strength of job growth and the weakness of inflation. He's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and he argues that the American economy is healthier than it looks. Right. Uh, and then finally it said uh, that he... Th- thinks that the Fed should aim to raise rates in December and three more times next year. Um, that kind of, I guess that's where I was, was part of my right. premise earlier is maybe the stock market is discounting a little stronger right. growth and things are better than we think. And there are. may be a new normal that uh, there may be a lower uh, sustainable unemployment rate than we thought. We used to think that a long time ago below 5% uh, would uh, generate inflation. Now it seems below 1%, 4%. Uh, the big issue now, we, we we always have this perpetual question, when is the Fed going to uh, raise interest rates and it never goes away? But the new question is who's going to be the Fed uh, uh, person in charge now? And that's, uh, seems that seems to that be – That was going into my next segue. That, that a lot of people think Donald Trump will pick Federal Reserve Governor Jay Powell. Right. Uh, but I think Wall Street prefers, at least in the surveys, uh, Janet Yellen. To be yeah, it's a point. strange world when uh, uh, Janet Yellen was uh, is considered much more uh, liberal than uh, uh, Larry Summers, who was the other candidate for the Federal Reserve uh, uh, person, and and uh, she is. If you look at the uh, the data, certainly has uh, has done well. Although that's not necessarily the the final judge, but but there are some very uh, different people involved in uh, uh, interviewing for the the position. So uh, it could be uh, someone who's much more uh, hawkish, like uh, um, Taylor from Stanford, who might raise interest rates quite a bit more. So there's more uncertainty now than usual in, in the fact that we're changing the uh, the person. Well, it seems like, like I said, a lot of players in the industry, economists, kind of would prefer, at least as I said, as they're surveyed uh, for Janet Yellen, but it doesn't look like that's probably going to happen. And, and it doesn't look to me like that's likely to happen either. So, uh, again, um, you know, I, I think that, well, getting back to the stock market that just seems to having this melt up, so to speak, I think maybe it is, bec- you know, I, I've always wondered if, if you could triple the stock market in 2% growth, 
um, and have and basically because you have all time high earnings. So a lot of people are wondering, and you know, you com- a lot of commentary of how could the stock market be at such record right. highs all the time? It's reaching all time highs. It's because earnings are reaching all time highs at the right. same time. So maybe it's this idea that maybe with some of that fuel that's left from all the quantitative easing, there's still some in there. I mean, not as much as people think. Combined with maybe even a two and three quarters to three percent economy. <laughs> if they can make that much money in a really slow economy, okay. how much can they make maybe yeah. in a three percent? And, and the other uh, argument that we have is that there's uh, really no place to hide. Uh, your options now are pretty limited outside the stock market. So we heard this, you know, searching for yield. So I, there's not not too many options for a, a fixed income that gives a, a pretty strong return. So people may be uh, throwing their money in, the, uh, throwing their uh, lot with the I think stock market. I think there's a lot safe for that. I've always said. Um, you know uh, this the chasing of higher yields interest rate dividend yields mm-hmm. kind of, you know uh, income oriented securities uh, probably costs investors more money than the stock market the volatility because it usually brings people in to do things at the wrong time um, you know you can see that you know probably for the last three or four years you know what have all the commentators been saying well interest rates are going to spike up they're going to spike up or they're going to normalize and if they normalize bondholders are going to be in trouble yeah and now here we are almost 10 years later still in pretty close to epic low interest rates uh pretty wearing on people that are trying to invest in there's also a a real challenge uh i guess in one sense it's fortunate if someone were to inherit inherit uh, five hundred thousand or a million dollars. Uh, the question is, what should you do? And our our long term story is, well, you decide your allocation and you go sure, for it. Yeah. But b- both both choices now are pretty uh, pretty daunting. Uh, the stock market's at all time high. Uh, interest rates are really low. And really, so the bond market's at an all time high. Yeah. So so uh, something uh, may happen, and but you still have to make decisions. So it's it, uh, uh, something I wouldn't. Uh, I, I obviously would like to. Uh, have access to another million dollars, but I'd sure. like to have to decide how to how to deal with it. But that does happen every day. People people walk in our office, and maybe they've been in a four hundred one k plan, and maybe they've had it invested really conservatively. And we look out over the next three decades, and we realize that well, that's a, a pure fixed income or income securities type of investment plan is not going to allow them to outrun the cost of living and do the things they need to do over the next twenty to thirty years. And then it becomes the dilemma, okay, do you go in now with, let's just suppose you come out of a 401k and you're 60 or 62 years old. You're looking at maybe a three-decade retirement. And maybe just for textbook reasons, you, you talk, go talk to your advisor. And at the moment, going into retirement, maybe 20% or so of your uh, portfolio is in the stock market and 80% is fixed income. And then the advisor says, that's not going to work. Okay, we've we've tested this over and over. We've run lots of scenarios, and that's really not likely to work. It's just the probability is too low. And well, what do you, what do we need to do? Mm-hmm. And it, say it turns out to be sixty percent stocks, forty percent fixed income. Well, okay, now we're going to go tripling our stock market exposure. Do you do it all in one day, or do you dollar cost average? And and, and the way I approach it, and if it's really for the long term goal, and the kids are better at this than I am uh, in the office, um, I after doing this for 34 years, I tend to err on the side of, let's try to manage some emotional mm-hmm. regret. And we do that by not making that commitment today by three o'clock. We, date, we might take six months or nine months or 12 months, depending on the attitude of the client, and say, we're gonna make a down payment. We're gonna, we're gonna go from your current 20% to 40%, because we just, otherwise we're really probably, that's just the best strategy to yeah. do it. All, the truth of the matter is, and Dave and Ryan, you can weigh in on us how you feel. But the best answer is if it belongs in there for 30 years, right. it should be in there in the next 30 minutes. But right. I found with human, we have the human side. People don't live in spreadsheet world. Right. Uh, the human side, I tend to at all-time highs and have been for some time. And it's hurt return probably, uh, no question, a dollar cost averaging over the last year uh, would have cost you some return. You still had very handsome returns. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, the same way that it's a behavioral, psychological sort of thing. And the, the fact is, though, that if you said to someone, your choice is leave it where it is or, or roll the dice and put the whole thing in right now, they might say no. So dollar cost averaging might actually encourage them to move in that direction when they wouldn't move at all otherwise. So psychologically or behaviorally, uh, it allows dollar cost to averaging there. makes some sense, even though it uh, probably doesn't in a 
in a kind of a black and white world. And what I tell clients too, I said, now I want the discretion to speed it up at right. my convenience. Uh, I'm not, I don't ask permission. I, if, yeah. and, and that historically has worked quite well right. for me, is to just use my feeling of, okay, th- this thing's out of bullets or it's so close to being out of bullets. Yeah. We're, I'm not doing any more dollar cost averaging. I'm just, I'm just going in. And speaking of scary stock markets and things, uh, David, I know you're filling in uh, for Daniel. And Daniel wrote a post coming up on Halloween. Um, well, he's, um, <laughs> in honor of Halloween, Daniel wrote a blog about retirement fears, which he actually published on Friday the 13th. So I think there's a method to their madness. You can read that on RudyWealth.com. So, Dave, I know that you kind of had a hand in helping him uh, with that article. What are some of the most common retirement fears uh, and I know there's research around this that shows, you know, just how, you, what do you see in the office talking to real people with, uh, looking at retirement close up? What are some of the basic, most common fears or maybe the stronger ones? Well, I actually mentioned the biggest fear last time I was on the show, and that is actually running out of money. And I think I phrased it as that was like the number one fear. And if you look at the study, Paul clarified, it's actually the most common fear. So what you look at is if you if they when they surveyed retirees over half of the people said that they were afraid of running out of money um, one of the interesting things is I mean that's human nature to worry about that and that is probably the most common concern we hear with new clients or prospective clients that come into our office is you know really if you build a good conservative plan that really shouldn't be too large of a concern especially when you consider most people at least have a base of social security or if you're a university employee, a pension, and then you're just getting the remainder from a portfolio, you just need to make sure you're taking a conservative withdrawal rate. And, and, you, and you have to anticipate that, look, we, we don't control returns. We don't, we don't create returns. We harness returns for our clients. Uh, and we just really, a lot of the, the, most of their outcome is going to be determined by how much in uh, you know, this great companies of America and the world, some people call it the stock market, and then how much in income producing securities, uh, fixed income bonds and CDs and things like that. Um, what about, do you ever get people that, that talk about, you know, at least to you, that they're worried that they either won't be able to retire when they want or how they want or have the lifestyle they want? Yeah, I do. I mean, you, you hear this more from younger people. A lot of times we'll get people that even come in just for kind of an initial consultation and maybe they're not planning on retiring for 10, 15 plus years. And if you don't really have a financial background, you have no idea how much money it's going to take to fund your current lifestyle. And there's so much that goes into that. And then planning for all the contingencies and different risks in retirement. And it's just a huge concern that weighs on people because most people don't want to work until their mid-70s. But the reality is if you're not saving properly, you may end up having to work a lot longer than than you kind of hope for. Um, so this is one, again, an area where you really just need to come up with a financial plan. And if you're doing it on your own, do a little bit of research and figure out what a safe withdrawal would be from a portfolio and then figure out how much money or a lump, what type of lump sum of assets you would need to supplement uh, the income you're receiving from whatever income streams you have. Yeah, I think I've always taken the position that, you know, backing into a, a decent portfolio at a Vanguard or something like that uh, is, is really quite easy to do. Uh, it's fairly simple. What's difficult is everything that's going to drive your lifestyle over that three decades in retirement is ultimately uh, going to be how you behave and how you relate through the plan. Do you have a plan up front? To have a plan, you need a planner. And I don't care how smart people are. Well, financial planning is a way of thinking. It's it's not necessarily a, a, you have to be brilliant or any. It's not an IQ test. It's it's a way of thinking. And it, and if you can have a plan that look, a plan's going to change. Life's going to have curveballs, and you're going to have to have somebody there that can answer questions that are seemingly unanswerable when those curveballs come. But I I suspect it's my view that one out of a hundred people can do it themselves. That is, create a lifetime retirement plan. Uh, that's based on good theoretical grounds that is well tested and simulated ahead of time. And then if they're doing it on their own, there's a lot of mental anguish and the mental anguish over that 30 year period is constantly second guessing ourselves. Oh, I wonder if I should have done that or, 
oh, I should have done that, and I didn't. It's, it's a lot of mental anguish that goes along with the responsibility of producing a lifetime that you're not going to outspend, and you're, and you're going to be able to meet the rising cost. Even at trendline inflation, Fred, uh, one would expect over a right. three-decade uh, time period for their cost to at least double, but maybe right. even think about it tripling. Right. Yeah, so these are big challenges. And probably, the uh, surprisingly, uh, the mistake most people make who do it themselves is that they uh, save too much, not enough. There's a, yep. a, a real risk, not risk, but a, if, if you're worried about running out of money, the logical thing is to save a whole lot more, and you may be saving more than you actually uh, need for retirement. That's kind of a strange thing to say. And, you know, I, I see it every day. I always say people that do it on their own, uh, and it's, again, it's not because they don't have the intellect to do it. It's, a, it's the emotional, behavioral issue we have as humans in the way we're wired. Everyone that walks in for the first time and explains to me what they're doing they're either doing one of two things they're either spending less than they could be spending and i i call that needlessly sacrificing the one life you get mm. or they're spending more than they should be uh and and to me one's as bad as the other uh they have different outcomes obviously right. and, and everybody's attitude might be different about which outcome's worse yeah. and then as you said i i have a lot of people that come into my office that don't even realize that they have the critical mass to retire on their terms as they define it, at their vision of their retirement today. And they think they may have to work another five or seven years. And then when I tell them, not only that, even if you're not going to retire, adding more money to your 401k plan, unless you're just wired in such a way that you want to do it, um, you're, you're needlessly saving. And what I'll try to do for people that just can't stop working, they just can't get over it yet, that concept to say, okay, that ten or 12000 you're putting in your 401k plan, that's an extra cruise or two while you're in your 50s or while you're in your early 60s. Mm. And that it's, it's, it's kind of that baby step approach. Again, it's a way of thinking. It's kind of, I, sometimes when I'm meeting with a prospective client, the, the kids will look at me and they probably think, oh, dad's falling asleep again. But my brain is literally just joggling around all these income streams that these people are telling me they have and their assets kind of mm. all combined into one. And I kind of look off into space and usually, pretty quickly I can determine whether they're retirement ready. It's right. just, that's what 34 years does right. for you too. And the other thing, just parenthetically, that uh, like you said, uh, if someone's planning at 50 uh, and have a plan, uh, that plan can be modified if invest, investment returns don't go as, uh, are not as strong as you expect. You can maybe work an extra year or cut back your uh, consumption a little bit, things of that sort. So people don't really run out. They have, there, there's a mid-course correction where you can uh, adjust yeah, for changes. Think about if you're a super tanker. Now, super tankers can't turn on a dime, okay? And if the captain of the super tanker knows that in 10 miles ahead of me, there's this island kind of pops out of the middle of nowhere, I need to start making those adjustments now in the next mile because I can't make really sharp adjustments. And that's a thing, a, 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 I think a really an excellent advisor is going to know, and you're going to know with with your advisor, where those sort of guardrails are. You know, you, it's one thing to have that, you know, if it was an airplane, it'd be a flight plan. I don't know what it is, a ship plan. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you need to know where those islands are or where those obstacles are. We call them guardrails. Right. We know there's a guardrail that if the market or the portfolio value drops below a certain uh, point, we're probably going to have to make some modest adjustments. Mm -hmm. If it gets the outer guardrail, the good guardrail, um, we're going to make adjustments there. But we don't have to wait till we hit the guardrail. And that, right. that's, the, that's the concept, Fred, is that... I think an advisor is able to spot those guardrails, and, and, and I haven't met anybody. In fact, I, I think it's safe to say, I can't prove it, I don't have any data, I haven't found many advisors that are particularly good at it. Mm -hmm. You know, They don't think in terms of guardrails, they think in terms, typically in terms of investments and earning a certain return, and, and we're just so much more planning oriented, it doesn't make us better, I'm just, just an observation. Just, uh, Go ahead, Dave. And then one of the others I was going to ask you about uh, before you go on is what about long-term care? I mean, do we get a meeting that, you know, a prospective client doesn't ask us about long-term care and can they outrun that? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a really, really common one. I think beyond just running out of money and it's really related, right? Because that's what they're worried sure. about is I'm going to have an extended long-term care need that's expensive. That's going to cause me to run out of money or become dependent on my children 
or go on Medicaid, and then I'm not going to be in the facility that I would ideally like to be in. And, 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 and having to rely on the children, I've noticed over the years, that's a big one. That's, that's, I mean, I think a lot of people will, they'll eat rice and beans forever as long as they don't have to end up on their children's doorstep. I mean, that is a universal theme. And, you know, the interesting thing, just anecdotally, is it doesn't seem to go away no matter how much money the clients have. You know, we'll have clients that are pretty late into their life. They have millions of dollars, you know, some of our wealthier clients, and they still kind of worry about that. And, you know, you start talking to them about giving more money away, and the reason that they don't do it now as opposed to waiting until, you know, they're on their deathbed is because they're worried something's going to happen, and it's kind of like this nebulous thing. They don't really know what it would be, but it'll be a marked decline or something. And then I'll wish I didn't give that money away. So that's a little bit of a tangent. It's kind of that mentality. Um, you know, they heard stories of the Great Depression that, oh, I, I've heard people lose all their money overnight. And I, I sense that, too. There's a fear that, okay, I, I have that money sitting there, but it's not real almost. Yeah, and sometimes I almost wonder if it gets more stressful once you've built up some wealth because you start worrying about losing it. It's like, man, things are going so well. I've built up you know, this critical mass, I've got more money than I really need. Now I'm more nervous about going back to the way things were. Did that ever creep into money? Did that ever creep into you, Fred? Um, you know, once you kind of hit that critical mass, uh, which you probably did at 38. Not, not really, but uh, I, I mean, I, I earlier, but uh, again, I, I think uh, I, I, I'm you were able to I'm, deal I'm with much, that. I'm a, a number of uh, different uh, firewalls around. So I think I, I was going to say you, you started out talking about long term care. I I received actually uh, I rarely rarely receive any letters of any importance in the mail, but I received two this week. One was the check from the state of Illinois, which was good news. Right. The bad news from Allianz was, uh, hey, we're doubling your premiums for long term care. Yeah. So long term care is very difficult to uh, uh, plan for. It, it's very difficult. And, and the way our approach is put them side by side. What does it cost to keep your current premiums? And we always assume that if they've been purchased, oh, in the last, you know, 10 years ago or so, not in the last 10 years, the more recent policies are probably going to be a little more robust yeah. and do a little better job of protecting their client base. But the people that bought them 10, 12, 13, 14 years ago, um, if they haven't gotten that letter that, hey, we need to double your premiums or cut your benefits in half, yeah. it's probably coming at them. Right. Um, and so we'll just run those scenarios side by side to see that, look, maybe we can just sacrifice a little bit of our lifestyle and, in a sense, earmark money and reserve it and let that grow over the next 20 years and see which one has a higher probability of outrunning that long-term right. care problem. Uh, Dave, before we get back uh, on retirement fears, I want to remind people they can call us at 351-5667. I think Ed Bond's pretty amazed that I remembered that, that the different number or you could text us on the castle heating and cooling text line at 351-5357 we always enjoy your calls and we always enjoy your texting which uh, seems to be more and more popular what about investments themselves dave how much do you find people fixating on that or, or, or is that a dominant concern or is that one that's kind of a quite a ways down the road well again i think it's related to the other concerns but it, it definitely is a huge concern pretty much everyone universally that comes into our office, especially as they're approaching retirement or early in phases of retirement, they get really nervous about market declines. And again, that's really just another way of kind of a manifestation of I'm worried that this market decline is going to cause me to run out of money at some point. Um, but again, that's where you just have to make sure that if you're building a plan, that plan's built on the assumption that, yes, you're going to experience market declines. And you show it to them right up front, right? You, you, you basically say, look, here's the strategy we're going to follow from a portfolio allocation mix between stocks and fixed income securities. And you basically kind of make them taste it up ahead of time. And now with 2008, 2009 in our pocket, uh, that's quite a reminder because that was that was a more exaggerated uh, decline in the stock market than the typical bear market. So and, and now I know you're going to investment policy statements and we're getting those done for every client. And and that's also another reminder that they have to look at and stare at to say, are we really sure we're going to do this? Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about this one, though, is this worry is almost it, it kind of conflicts with the other worries, because the more you build a portfolio that will not experience significant market declines, 
the more you're probably increasing the likelihood of running out of money. And when you say running out of money, it could be you still have money, but it's not buying you as much. You're basically, to me, money is purchasing power. Yeah, and I, and I don't and, think it's and, even and fair. you run out of purchasing power. Yeah, I don't think it's even fair to jump to the extreme of running out of money. It could just be a significant cutback in your lifestyle or, or a significant decrease in your wealth beyond what you would be comfortable with over your lifetime. So it's it's not this all or nothing binary thing. It's, you know, a, a good plan you'd expect your your portfolio balance to decline over time because if it's if it's not then you're really not utilizing your assets to the fullest extent. But you know, yeah, someone but if someone has a goal that maybe it's just as important to them that their children end up with at least what they started with in real terms. Um, then that might call for a different adjustment, uh, you know. Then then it might be okay. It's just a deliberate choice to cut your spending a bit because those two goals are competing a little bit. Right. So yeah, I mean, like I said just in the beginning of this, I think it's human nature to worry about those declines and want to build this very conservative portfolio, but people don't always realize the implications of that decision. There's implications to every decision. There's implications if you do things, and there's implications if you don't do things. And that asset allocation one that you you know is a big one. You know that's the one you and your advisor really need to get right. You don't want to. You don't ever want an allocation that's going to create more fluctuation or uncertainty than it's necessary for achieving everything you want to achieve. Um, you know while you're on Earth, and that's what really gets monitored. And and let's face it, we're going to have probably over one's lifetime. Uh, though past performance is no indication of future results, but. If we study the beginning of basically public markets in the U.S., it certainly uh, a pr- seems like a permanent uptrend, but there's going to be lots of volatility around that. And there are going to be adjustments. Most of them are going to be adjustments that you're going to enjoy. But if you retire today and it's, it's October of two, you know, or the fall of 2008 and we just don't know it yet, uh, it might make, that would have caused maybe some modest changes for a modest period of time. Um, but you know, here we are almost 10 years later and you know, th- anybody that had those modest changes now would be living a lifestyle beyond what their plan originally called for. So that's where a good advisor comes in is basically keeping you between those guardrails at all time. And it's just as important to recognize what's overfunded is underfunded. So we don't get into that needless sacrifice of the one life we get. You're listening to Paul Rudy's on the money radio show. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. Financial advisor, Ryan Repco, and then my son, your David, right? Yeah, David. Yeah. <laughs> financial, uh, certified financial planner professional, David Rudy in the studio. You can call us at 351-5667 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. Well, we're going to go from uh, retirement fears uh, to, I guess, tr- dealing with another fear. Another fear is emergencies happen. Life curveballs happen and you know the first step i always say to financial security is the establishment of that emergency fund guys uh before you even start thinking about investing and then there's other issues besides that there's maybe debt you need to pay off before you start investing or or at least doing both at once according to a 2016 report on economic well-being of u.s households conducted by the federal reserve 44 percent of adults say they either could not cover an emergency expense costing 400 dollars or would cover it by selling something or borrowing money. That's a big deal. So, Ryan, I know you wrote a blog uh, that we published on our site. Was that yesterday? Yep. Okay. And you can read that at RudyWealth.com. And it's basically, all this is fresh in his mind since he just wrote the blog. So I'm going to point a little of the questions at him to talk about emergency funds today. I know we've covered this topic before, but sometimes it's easy to slip through the cracks. Um, what was your motivation for for writing that? Is it personal <laughs> or, or just, you know, something you see? You know, you guys are a lot younger. Um, you, you have a three in front of your age. And so you have a lot of friends. I know one of your physician college roommates was just down visiting you. What, what was the motivation behind writing a blog about emergency funds? I don't think about writing a blog about emergency funds. Yeah, it's not the uh, sexy topic, that's for sure. But I think with anything, you just have to start at the beginning and uh, see what is the cornerstone of a good financial plan, whether that be a plan with an advisor or just a plan you draw up for yourself. And if you can weather some of life storms that get thrown at you and then you know they're eventually going to come at some point, you have the ability to withstand some of those storms. And that's 
the purpose of an emergency fund is and having some money on hand. Because we're going to get those rainy days. We're going you to will. get those emergencies. Refrigerators break, roofs leak, cars break down. Uh, and the last thing you really want to do, I guess, is, you know, uh, not have the money. So now you go into your 401k and you have to borrow it or cash some money out. And, that, and you don't want to do that. So can you give us some guidelines? Uh, I know as a when you took the Certified Financial Planner Professional Examination, that was part of it. Um, what's your take? What's the kind of the benchmark or the textbook case for emergency funds? The textbook's really, a, it's, it's a range, about three to six months of non-discretionary spending that you should have set aside in your emergency fund should that rainy day pop up. And it's a range because there is a variation from people to people. You're younger, you're older, your different life situations, being married or having children. Careers are different. Careers are different. Uh, earnings are different. So there's so much variation that you can't give a one-size cookie-cutter answer. Well, is there, can you fence it in somehow? Absolutely. So three to six months is a very good uh, safe range to be in. Three months would be the absolute minimum. Depending on your job, that may be perfectly fine. And, and that's some of the items I tried to uh, hash out in the in the blog I just wrote is I fit in within this variation, so I have a good understanding of what I might spend. And that's your non-discretionary budget. So that's you know you know the rent or the mortgage is going to show up at the beginning of the month. You know the power company needs to get paid. Uh, we know that the food bill comes. You have to eat. So you really tend to focus then on the non-discretionary things. You really can't you know you can't turn them off. You're right. Another way to say it is. Your non-discretionary expenses are those that don't go away simply because you lost your job, for example, or maybe you're, you're facing some medical condition. You still have to pay these bills right. regardless. So who, who qualifies for the three, conceptually, three months of non-discretionary budget uh, to be put aside in reserves and someone who might have six or nine or even 12 months? Sure. So someone starting on the low side was three months of, of savings stored up. It'd be somebody maybe who's in uh, the younger part of their life. They're uh, in a job where they might be able to easily transfer into a new position should that job uh, disappear. So it's something that uh, you're not so far along in your career yet. Uh, you're not in a experienced position where you're difficult to replace. It's somebody where you could get a new job relatively easily by transferring. Uh, I'd recommend three to four months of savings in that case, just so you have a little bit to weather the storm. Fred, uh, my view has been that the change maybe over the last couple decades. When we see these surveys, most people can't come up with 400. Right. Is that because we've substituted emergency funds for a credit card? Everybody has a credit card. Usually they get 1,000 or 2,000 instantly. Uh, is that a, even a reasonable way to, th to, to think about an emergency fund? Well, I, mean, I kind of think it is, it but, is, it, I, but it's it probably is. not good to say that. It is in a sense if you have the wherewithal to... Uh, pay it back uh, uh, fairly quickly and not uh, not keep it for a long time. Uh, again, emergency funds are kind of a tricky thing. It, it, some people, it's simply a matter of, do I have the resources to deal with these problems? For other people, do, do I have the liquidity to deal with the problems? So it's strangely, uh, it sounds, sounds strange, but someone who is uh, the, on the path you talked about, retired and, and doing fine having assets, they really don't need much of an emergency fund because uh, they have access to liquidity. They, they can sell right. some of their assets. Uh, a, a, home, a, a, a line of credit on a home equity loan is a very good way of, of dealing with liquidity issues. So if you have the resources, you're worried more about getting the liquidity. If you don't have the resources, like Ryan said, right. you're worried about actually having something there to, to spend. And that liquidity need is big on people. I've noticed I don't have a client that doesn't have their number, whether it's 10000 in the checking account or 100000 Right. If it gets below that, that's their number. But, but, but in reality, though, you could sell some of their well, of assets course. in, in uh, a day or two, and they'd well, have them. It's just—it's a psychological issue. Yeah. It's got to be sitting in the checking account, or they just don't—they just don't sleep well that night. But kind of turning back to more of the younger set, uh, early in their career, mid-career, uh, not a lot of savings. Maybe doing some savings. Um, you know, you can get some. How do things like uh, medical care, a sudden emergency room visit, because those can really those can pile up pretty good, depending on your insurance, and even with insurance, they pile up pretty good. Where does that kind of, how does that fit into how much you should set aside? 
Uh, you should certainly look at, uh, if you're in like a high deductible health plan, what your out-of-packet maxes are, what your deductibles are. And uh, these are items that you should be aware of should you go into an emergency room or have a procedure due to maybe some sort of car accident or an event where you get some sort of health scare, that you know you have that money at a minimum set aside so you can cover those higher expenses. They could be $1,000 or more meeting those deductibles. Oh, sure. If you have a couple of kitties or so, you know, then you might be thinking, you know, yeah, I need a few months of discretionary income set aside, but I'm going to set aside almost more likely events, you mm-hmm. know, the, the medical care costs, because that's one that really has become a bigger and bigger out-of-pocket expense. And so you might what, you might add that if you're going to have three months of just your normal spending. You may say, you know what, we need to add another two or 3000 into that buffer account or whatever that right number is, and then that all adds up to the emergency fund. And then you have it there. And talking about a, a family, so I had just addressed somebody who's maybe young in their career, uh, only needing about three or four months, but you bring up a very good point. Someone who's older, a little more established, they have multiple kids. Uh, if you're maybe the, the sole income earner for the family, you shouldn't have three months. You should certainly have more closer to the six months. And depending on how many kids you have, you know as a father, you can right. be in an emergency room pretty quickly without any... <laughs> yeah, David was always trying that cape thing. He always thought if he had a cape on, he could jump off the roof and <laughs> yeah. it would work. That explains a lot of things. Oh, how about... Okay, so we've determined we're going to put six months of non-discretionary spending in, and I'm going to add another $5,000 or $3,000. And so I, now I have a, call it a $10,000 emergency fund. Um, how we invest that, uh, I think sometimes bothers people because it's probably, I'm guessing you're going to say it doesn't belong in anything that fluctuates in value. Absolutely not. And it, it's hard for a lot of people to take, especially those who have been responsible and in investing their money throughout their careers and putting money into their 401ks or IRAs or just other brokerage accounts to put a serious chunk of money into anything that doesn't return money for you is difficult. And it, and it is what we would recommend to put your money into a reputable bank savings account. And the reason for that is this money is not being set aside to make returns. This money is being set aside to weather a storm should it pop up. So if it's got $10,000, it needs to be 10000 next week and 10000 a year from now not 5000 because something bad happened in the economy or the stock market. Precisely. One, one thing I would add there is, I guess, probably the only exception to that would be talking about health care expenses. If you really are in a high deductible health plan, uh, you could contribute to a health savings account and basically use that money to help fund at least the, the kind of medical expenses portion of your emergency fund. So again, like Ryan said, maybe look at your out-of-pocket maximums. Try to save that up in an HSA. There's limits each year. I think it's like $3,000 a year that you can contribute. Um, Again, you probably want to invest it pretty conservatively. Um, But the advantage of doing that is then you put money in there uh, before tax, and then if you use it for qualified medical expenses, you take it out tax-free. Okay, so there's there's another good avenue there. Mm -hmm. Well, Fred, now on to the big stuff. (laughs) Okay, so last week we had some excitement. The uh, House, the Senate, it was, because I was down in Texas with my brother, two of my brothers, and they watch C-SPAN and all these channels, like like a lot of people watch soap operas. Uh, The Senate passed a budget resolution, so that's a key step, right? It allows them to get started on tax reform. (laughs) And then what, they reconcile it because the House has also passed their concept of a budget. And then once they do that, the staff starts writing the actual bill. Right. So right now everything's conceptual. Is that kind of where we're at? Well, uh, we're at that, but uh, there was kind of a scare this week that was uh, a needless scare, and and almost everyone misinterpreted it. Uh, The talk about doing away or or lowering the 401K contributions substantially. So now it's in the $20,000 range they were talking about. Moving it down to the like what twenty six hundred or twenty four hundred something like uh, that. What the the news didn't mention was that that was only for the traditional four hundred one k. The, the uh, Roth, which is almost uh, we right. talked many times, there's not a big difference between a Roth and a traditional. So the uh, Roth would still be available, and this was not uh, for any uh, particularly good reason except expediency. The reason why they wanted to 
uh, move to a Roth was to get people to pay their taxes up front and be able to book that as tax revenue, which gave them uh, ability to cut taxes more in other areas. So for the ordinary investor, uh, it really would only constrain you in the sense you might have to have a a Roth rather than a traditional IRA. And for most people, that's not a a, a kind of catastrophic kind of uh, change. So that was sort of a misinterpretation. Not not just on the part of the news, but uh, news media, but on the part of the president. The and they president, put that fire out right away. But the president came right out and said, I'm not going to do anything with uh, 401ks, which is not really uh, probably the, the best thing to do at this stage. Right, but certainly popular. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and probably a lot of politicians will, will be happy to follow him on that one. Yeah. What about this idea of... Uh, not being able to deduct your property taxes and your state in uh, right. and your and your state income taxes that you paid. Obviously, if you're in Connecticut and New York right. and some of those high California, uh, how does is it because it only takes 51 votes if they get it if they unlock right. re- reconciliation? Now we're talking about a 51 vote, but even within the 51 votes, you got yeah. a lot of those votes that you might be coming from. Well, I'm just yeah. trying to think. California is probably Democratic senator, I'm guessing. Yeah, it, it is. New York, uh, Connecticut. New York, Connecticut. Uh, right. So no, it's sort of a death by a thousand cuts. The the argument about tax reform is you want to lower the tax rates, increase the uh, standard deduction, and get rid of a lot of the complexity and also uh, collect some money. So uh, you, you can't have all those things. You have to give up something. And what they're what they're asking us to give up are some of the deductions. And the, pro- the point is that for most people, uh, they don't take the deductions anyway. And with the much higher standard deduction, probably doubling it, uh, even fewer people would take it. So it, you're really only talking about a very, very small number of people right. who would lose, but those people obviously are going to fight. So, the, the again, a- a- economists would say the two things that uh, probably should go first would be over faced in the uh, interest deduction for mortgage uh, payments and the uh, state and local tax deduction, uh, but those obviously have a, a strong constituency, the real estate industry for one, and then uh, the states that you talked about in the other. It's interesting to see politicians suddenly concerned about a budget deficit. Right. Uh, you know, it, yeah. I mean, it's like both sides of the aisle, you, you can pull a string out of their back, and they're like those dolls back in the old days right. where saying you what you, exp- nothing changes, you know, they got right. about five things they say, and you pull the string, and they just kind right. of rub- uh, what what do you? I mean, I, I know you're. We're all guessing. Uh, you know what? What do you see? Do you even see? You have any thoughts about what's more likely than not to happen this year? Yeah, it, it's uh, unlikely to have uh, what uh, we would call a comprehensive tax reform, which would be maybe a significant lowering the rates and broadening the base and getting rid of a lot of the uh, so-called loopholes. Uh, what's likely ha- to happen is we'll go uh, kind of holding step in that direction and have a slight lowering of rates and maybe uh, limit some of the deductions but not get rid of them. But then the other, the, the wild card here is the uh, business side that uh, yeah. there seems to be uh, fairly wide agreement about lowering corporate rates. But the question is uh, how do you get people to uh, do that and, and maintain the revenue in other, other places? How do you feel about corporate taxes? I, I, I always think of it this way. Uh, I know, I think it was uh, Romney that got really got heck for saying companies aren't people. Uh, right. and, and Milton Friedman said, look, companies can't can't pay it. I mean, right. no, people have to pay the tax. And I, because my brother Dave, he, he, he tends to think that corporations yeah. are, you know, are yeah. people and can pay tax. And I said, Dave, if they said, oh, Dave, from now on, you don't have to pay any Illinois income tax. You're just going to have to pay property tax. Yeah. And it's just as much. Is your property paying the taxes or are you paying the taxes? Right. It, it seems to me that that if you really step back and just from from uh, politics, hmm. um, you know, the, the companies really can't pay yeah. taxes. I mean, either the shareholders are paying it through lower dividends or, or the wage earners are going to get lower wages or the consumer gets higher prices. Companies right. are going to make a return on their capital net right. of taxes one way or another. Right. And uh, it may be uh, surprising to most people, but uh, economists, both uh, liberals and conservatives, don't have very much uh, good to say about the corporate income tax. Uh, you have a, a corporate income tax is a kind of uh, situation where you're taxing uh, one kind of income uh, uh, more more. Uh, uh, 
at a higher rate than other kinds of income. Anytime you do that, you end up with efficiencies and uh, reasons for uh, you know avoiding taxes by moving things around. So uh, economists, I think, if they had their way, which maybe people are happy they don't, would be to uh, get rid of the corporate tax to allocate all of the corporate income back to the individual level, not just the uh, dividends, but also the retained earnings. Right, have, pass it have, through. Have everyone pay at the uh, at the individual level, similar to a partnership or a or a. a, a and that's not a, done because. Well, there, it's extra. It, I, the, the two reasons: it provides some extra money, and secondly, there's this belief that uh, if the corporations are paying it, I'm not paying it. Oh, yeah, that's what so, gets so, property so tax issue, well, or not even property tax, but in uh, that that. If you were to get rid of the, of the uh, corporate tax, you'd be paying more at the individual level. Okay, so, so, so people think somehow if you can put it on business, uh, you're not paying it, but you may pay it, as you said, in lots of different uh, kind of subtle ways. Well, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of theories out there. People are certainly just reflexive. You know, you say uh, something and, and it's predictable. It's so yeah. predictable that I just can't hardly watch it yeah. anymore. The, the other – the, the uh, bad thing it, it, that may result is something like uh, Obamacare, where it's passed by a one-vote margin right. with only uh, Republicans on one side or Democrats on one side. So uh, a tax reform where it's uh, they get rid of the 60% requirement in the Senate and then pass it by one vote with all Republicans voting yes and all Democrats voting no is probably not a very strong way to move into a comprehensive <laughs> tax reform. Well, after you criticized Obamacare, you know, and, and the way that happened, if, you know, whether you're for it or not, I mean, this could happen in the same way. And, yeah. you know, if, if if you say it's wrong for the others, it could be yeah. wrong for this, even and, though one side might think they win and the other one loses. And the but, other thing is, it's only it's only as good as the next election. So if, if you pass something like this, it could be reversed uh, if a couple of Senate votes uh, move from one, one category to the other. Okay, well, I've got a couple minutes left, so I want to let everybody know we'll be hosting another retirement planning seminar on retirement planning, obviously, on Wednesday, November 15th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at our office on 2502 Galen Drive. In this event, the Rudy Wealth Management team, and Dave, I think it's mainly you, will walk you through the challenges facing those planning for retirement, discuss how to simple portfolio withdrawal rules to enhance your retirement spending. You can sign up online or by going to our seminars page at rudywealth.com, or you could call us at 356-1400. That, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've almost gone to we're running that one every two or three months because uh, it tends to get overbooked. Sometimes we have some no-shows, so we may even overbook it. But uh, it's been very popular, and, and the feedback has been strong. And we're, we usually get into sustainable withdrawal rates. I think we're going to spend a little more time this. I'm going to talk to you about this, Dave, but a little more time on focusing on Social Security claiming strategies and kind of the impact. And I think you'll, especially if you're thinking about retirement uh, in the near future, Social Security claiming strategies is a really important. Social Security income stream is an important income stream. People sometimes act like it's not, but it's it's a very powerful income stream in the claiming strategies. And most people are confused about the claiming strategy. You know, should I file now and then my other spouse stagger it, or should we do them both at the same time? How is it going to Im impact my tax situation? Uh, should I delay to 70 and pick it all up? So, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, again, you can call us at 356-1400 or go to rudywealth.com on our seminars page and sign up for the event. I think you'll enjoy it, and I think you'll, 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 you'll be glad you came. So, guys, thanks for listening. It's been fun to do it in the new studio. It looks great. Thanks, Ed Bond, and thanks, WDWS. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.